This is the State of Inclusion podcast, where we explore topics at the intersection of equity, inclusion, and community. In each episode, we meet people who are changing their communities for the better, and we discover actions that each of us can take to improve our own communities. I'm Amy Sanders. Welcome. Hi, this is Amy Sanders. And I'm Emma Winiski. We'd like to thank you for joining us for another episode in the series, The Practice of Building a More Inclusive Community. In this episode, Amy and I are going to dig a little deeper into the practice we call groundwork. So first, let's take stock of what we've covered so far in the series. The first practice we covered was the practice of self-work. The practice of self-work is all about preparing ourselves for our personal journey toward equity and inclusion. In that episode, we talked about the concepts of waking up, listening up, opening up, speaking up, and finally, stepping up. In our last practice episode, we shared information about the practice we call program work. There, we learned about communities that have established a team or a program to pursue a collection of projects, actions, and initiatives meant to bring about a specific result in their community. Maybe it was to improve education equity, improve economic mobility, eliminate health disparities, or even strengthen resilience. We gave some general program management tips and techniques, what we call Program Management 101. We also talked about some of the unique and challenging aspects of equity and inclusion programs. So today, we're going to talk about the practice of groundwork. Amy, why don't you kick off this episode with an explanation of what we mean when we talk about groundwork? Sure, Emma. So it's probably pretty obvious, you know, even to the casual listener, that building a more inclusive and equitable community doesn't just come from having a group of people who've done a great job on their own self-work. It doesn't even come from a community executing a program of change, actions, and initiatives, no matter how well-run and organized that program might be. Those things are necessary, but this work of building a more inclusive and equitable community requires a whole lot more than that. Real and lasting community change is about very broad community engagement and with some level of commitment and change that happens across the whole community, even something like a shift in community culture. And I think we all know that doesn't just happen. It has to be cultivated. And we do this through what we call the practice of groundwork. It's all about reaching across the community and preparing the community's soil for the seeds of equity and inclusion to germinate, take root, and to grow. And this means progress in areas kind of like individual learning, but also community learning. It's about motivating more people to move forward with you and be part of the change in your community. To make that happen, we've got to move pretty far beyond the facts and numbers. We have to be able to reach out and touch the hearts of people all across the community. It also means building, or in some cases rebuilding, the kind of relationships and community trust that we've found is so necessary for this work of equity and inclusion. And that likely means acknowledging and even helping the community to heal from past hurts and traumas. You know, in our discussion today, we're going to share some of the ways we've seen this come to life in communities that we've talked to all across the country. So you might ask me, so how do you know if your groundwork practice is making a difference? And I think we can tell that our groundwork practice is going well 
when we have increased the breadth of both individual and collective engagement, commitment, and ownership in this work of equity and inclusion. I think it's interesting that so many of the podcast interviews have touched on or were directly related to this practice of groundwork. It reminds me that there are so many different ways that you can develop and advance this practice in your own community. Again, I also really like the word practice when applied to the concept of groundwork. It really is a practice and one that will resonate, deepen, and expand as a community moves forward. So for today's discussion, we'd like to introduce three main pillars for our practice of groundwork. We're going to cover each one of these in more detail, but let me put them out here first. So first of all, we have community learning. Second, preparing hearts. And the last pillar, shifting community culture. Right. So Emma, in addition to the three pillars that you've just mentioned, community learning, preparing hearts, and shifting culture, I'm also going to talk a little bit at the end about the concept of emergence and how that applies across this practice of groundwork. So Emma, maybe our listeners are thinking to themselves, wow, this practice of groundwork sounds big and complex and challenging. And from everything we've seen and heard in our interviews and our research, they'd be right, it is. You know, what I've found is the practice of groundwork, perhaps more than any other practice, is going to stretch us and ask a lot of each one of us. We're going to be asked to think about how to help and encourage both individual and collective growth to emerge over what's going to feel like a really long time horizon, while also reminding ourselves that at the same time, change happens all along the way in the smallest of moments as we live every day into the community we wish to see. And we're going to be asked to have a forward-looking focus while still being willing to honestly look back and reckon with our own individual and our collective past and how it has gotten us to where we are. We'll want to recognize and celebrate progress while we also acknowledge it may not be evenly distributed to everybody. And we need to recognize that some of our past mistakes can still hold us back or hinder us. And even being willing to acknowledge that despite our best efforts, our community may still fall short for some people. And that means that as we're working to co-create an equitable and inclusive community that lifts everybody, we have to be willing to acknowledge that trauma and healing may still be ongoing for so many. Because this work is big, broad, and reaches all parts of the community, it reminds us of how important it is for us to remember our discussions of asset-based community development as a way for approaching this practice of groundwork. This isn't a task for a few people or, or even one organization. The more people engaged in this and the broader the commitment, the better. That's why in this particular practice, we want to focus on the asset-based approach Diamon Harja shared with us in his interview. We recommend looking across the community to find out who is already doing this work or who's ready to stand as active partners. In most communities, there is a lot of need and opportunity in the practice of groundwork. Still, it is so important to prepare the community soil for this work of, work of equity and inclusion. Yeah, the interview with Diamond's a great example, Emma. And I wanted to mention here that we've developed a template, maybe a simple kind of an approach for mapping out within a community those organizations and people already involved in this work. So, for example, when I did a rough draft of this map in my own hometown of Greenville, 
I was able to pretty quickly identify over 30 organizations that are already doing some type of groundwork in my community or who had demonstrated a willingness to partner on the work of equity and inclusion. And I wouldn't suggest you do this by yourself, but even by myself, I was able to identify about 30 organizations. And it included everybody from the racial equity and economic mobility team that's part of our United Way. And you, if you've been listening for a while, you may remember that we interviewed Reverend Stacy Mills, who's the director of that initiative. It also included folks like the Interfaith Justice Coalition that we also interviewed that team. But it also included our Fine Arts Center, who has screened films and hosted events for the community, and even a newer nonprofit organization working on Juneteenth celebrations, like the one we just had, and even a local foundation who has aligned most all of their funding and their work around equity, inclusion, and social justice. And I have to say that seeing that on the page instantly transformed my thinking. You know, I stopped thinking about just the problems and the gaps or what my community was missing. You know, and I even stopped feeling quite so overwhelmed and instead found that I had a feeling of, as Diamond talked about, abundance and gratitude for the community around me. It was really quite energizing and reminded me that my community was full of so much potential and people and organizations of good intent. It reminded me to recognize and reach out to kindred spirits in the community. You know, we all know this work is going to be long and challenging. We're going to need to support and lift each other up as we move our communities forward. Yeah, and if I can jump in here, you know, this practice of groundwork also requires us to get proximate to one another. This doesn't happen over Zoom or from a distance. It happens up close. Emma, you are so right. John Lederach and his daughter, Angela Jill Lederach, in their book, When Blood and Bones Cry Out, they talk about healing and reconciliation, and they work on healing and reconciliation at a global level in some of the world's most difficult conflict zones. And they say, healing initiates in shared collective spaces that permit proximity of voices and interactions. In the next part of this episode, We're going to delve more deeply into each of the three pillars that we've identified are part of groundwork, and that includes Pillar 1, Community Learning, Pillar 2, Touching the Hearts, and Pillar 3, Shifting the Culture. So, Emma, let's talk about the first pillar that we mentioned, Community Learning. Would you like to kick us off with that one? Sure thing. So when we think about community learning, it's it really happens across at least four different domains. The first domain is in the individual learning domain. So here we're thinking about individuals in the community and how we might help each of them to advance in their personal learning and community awareness, making learning opportunities available, creating safe spaces for learning, things like that. The second is the interpersonal learning domain. That's where we build and develop the collective skills and muscle required for more inclusive interactions with our neighbors. This includes learning the ability for constructive and inclusive collaboration, empathic listening, conflict resolution, holding space for difficult conversations, and more. The third is in the systems learning domain. So understanding how our systems are working and how they are creating and continuing inequities. 
learning how to articulate, visualize, and share our understandings of these systems, and also understanding our own role in place within these systems is important for this domain. Even identifying and learning where power is held and where potential levers of change might exist is included in this. And the fourth domain is transformational learning. So this is about building the skills and knowledge necessary to model and facilitate the change we wish to see in our community. It might include things like learning to share power, as well as mastering skills and processes for co-creation and learning how to shift community culture. As an example, when I think about the individual learning domain, Amy, I think about the spotlight that you put in a recent newsletter. You talked about creating aha moments of learning and how sticky these moments can be. In this domain of individual learning, we're trying to create more equity and inclusion-related aha moments for individuals across the community. In your spotlight, your story was about a personal work experience from some years ago, which also reminds us that employers in our communities can be great partners in this work, especially in the area of learning. Many of them have been at the work of DEI for years and regularly create learning experiences for their employees, who are, by the way, also some of our neighbors. Yeah, Emma, thanks for mentioning that example. And it's a good example, too, about always thinking about who we can have as partners in this work and who is already on this path ahead of us. And so let's keep on going with some more examples. You know, when I think about interpersonal learning domain, I kind of think back on our discussion with Davlin Hill. You may remember our discussion with her from Speaking Down Barriers. The mission of their nonprofit is all about enabling rich community conversations and group learning experiences. For them, it's taken a lot of different shapes from an all-day intensive training experience. I think you and I, Emma, both have attended one of those. And they also have created opportunities for community conversations. And they've done that around things like potluck suppers, book clubs, and short facilitated group education sessions. They use professional facilitators, but I also found it really interesting that they use community members as peer mentors and guides that they bring into these workshops. And some of their sessions, such as the intensive training, they even include elements where we share our own personal stories as part of that learning experience. And then you probably remember the Community Building Initiative in Charlotte also works in the same area and of interpersonal learning. In my interview with Janine Bryant, uh, she told us about their, what they call equity impact circles, where participants get together in small groups from the community and they learn to exchange perspectives, ask questions, and articulate ideas. And they do this over several weeks in different sessions. They support you know, the Community Building Initiative supports people to learn and use a common equity vocabulary. They help them develop an equity lens to analyze community issues, and they guide them towards action. Janine also shared about the leadership development training that they have to equip leaders across their community, and we have something similar to that in Greenville. So those are just a couple of examples. There are lots of ways to facilitate interpersonal learning. And if you don't mind, Emma, I'm going to keep going. Uh, I've got some other examples in my head. I want to take the topic of systems learning as well. You know, when I think about the domain of systems learning, the first thing I think about is how do we see ourselves in the systems that exist in our community? And how do we break down assumptions about others in our community and about those systems? 
For example, when we talked with Vicki Meath of Just Economics in Western North Carolina, she talked about facilitating community learning through hosting poverty simulations. That was one of the ways they did it. Lots of communities use simulations as a path to systems learning. And I've personally participated in our local poverty simulation with two different community teams. And, you know, sometimes we can have a really hard time seeing and relating to our neighbors' lived experiences when it's not like our lived experience. You know, the stereotypes and the social messaging that we absorb can be so strong that we just can't find a way to suspend judgment and cynicism enough to understand and recognize the challenges our neighbors face. We simply just don't understand how the barriers that they face, their scarcity and daily struggles would alter even our own decision-making and priorities. And one way to achieve a deeper level of understanding and awareness is through participating in these kinds of simulations. And through these simulation experiences, we just have a tiny moment to better empathize with our neighbors, to better understand the systems that are at work within our community, and a chance to move beyond stereotypes. These kinds of sessions also typically include, at the end, a group debriefing where the participants talk about and learn from one another's perspectives and experiences, and that helps broaden and deepen the experience for everybody. So one path to systems learning is about giving more community members the opportunity to, you know, step into a role, into the shoes, and experience the system up close, even if it is just temporarily for a moment but from a different perspective than they normally experience. And then there are other ways that communities also approach systems learning. I'm currently studying with a team at the Systems Sanctuary about techniques and methods that they use in communities all across the U.S. and even internationally to help community groups better understand, analyze, and diagnose the systems that are at work in their communities and begin to consider what kind of interventions they might use to improve the system outcomes for everybody. I'll jump in on the domain of transformational learning. When I think about the domain of transformational learning, I'm reminded of your conversation with Christy Kumar from Madison, Wisconsin. And in that interview, she told us, we're not where we are for a lack of plans, right? We haven't yet reached racially equitable societies for a lack of plans and research. The reason we're not there is because we haven't necessarily been taught or allowed to do an embodied practice where we are connecting the joy and the dignity piece, the belonging piece, the care piece into our work. So in some areas, we have to learn the skills we need to bring this kind of dignity, belonging, and care into our work. And as you said earlier, we may also have to learn skills around how to share power, techniques for co-creation, and learning how to shift community culture which we'll talk about in a minute. As an example, in the interview with the team from Yes for Equity, they described methods and techniques for power sharing with youth and how they work with communities to help them become more skilled at power sharing. They reminded us that in power sharing, for example, we have both things to learn and things to unlearn. So now that we've talked a little bit about the four community learning domains, which are, again, individual learning, interpersonal learning, systems learning, and transformational learning, I think that for any community, a good place to start on this work is with inquiry and deep reflection 
that helps us to consider what our community might need in terms of learning. So this could include asking ourselves some questions like, what does our community know and not know about inclusion and equity? What do we believe and not believe about one another? On this journey of equity and inclusion, what do we need to learn and what things do we need to unlearn? What kinds of skills, knowledge, and tools do we need to equip ourselves with for the journey ahead? And as we mentioned, we should also ask who has already been on this learning journey ahead of us and who could be partners in this work. And then how can we begin to practice and exercise new behaviors, skills, and knowledge, even in small ways, to move us towards mastery? Emma, those are really good questions for anybody in a community to consider as they think about this practice of groundwork. So we could talk about this pillar of community learning all day long. And as you said earlier, there are so many good examples in our interviews. They were just packed with learning on this subject. Still, we've got a lot more material to cover. So before we wrap up this pillar of community learning, there are just a few thoughts that I'd like to leave our listeners with. First, I just want to, I know this is obvious, but I just want to say learning does not equal change. Learning can happen in an instant with a powerful aha moment, but change takes time, it takes reflection, it takes commitment, and it takes practice. Another point is that all learning in the end of this area is personal. Even interpersonal learning, systems learning, and transformational learning all occur inside each one of us as individuals. And this practice also requires constancy to purpose and developing something we call a container for ongoing community learning. To show you what I mean, in Madison, Wisconsin, the YWCA there has held a racial justice summit for their community each year for 21 years. And also the Community Building Initiative in Charlotte They're a nonprofit that is almost completely dedicated in this area of groundwork and community learning. And those are both examples of lasting containers and teams that are demonstrating constancy to purpose. And finally, when I think about community learning, I'd also like to go back to our metaphor of the soil. I think of community learning as seeds planted across the community to take root and grow over time. Still, it's a lot more than individual seeds. It also creates a type of interconnected network as community members contribute to and share learning experiences together. We've just reviewed the first pillar, community learning. In this pillar, we covered four different learning domains. That was the individual learning, and the power of aha moments, interpersonal learning, where we gave examples from Speaking Down Barriers and the Community Building Initiative of Charlotte, systems learning, and the power of using simulations. We also talked briefly about techniques and tools used by communities to understand, analyze, diagnose, and create interventions. And finally, transformational learning, which includes the skills we will need to model and facilitate the community changes we want to see, including things like power sharing, co-creation, and shifting culture. We wrapped up with some things to remember that learning doesn't equal change, all learning is personal, 
Constancy to purpose is key and requires long-term containers for ongoing learning and thinking of learning as both seeds and network. Okay, so are you ready to transition now and talk about the pillar preparing the heart? Let's do it. Okay. You know, a long time ago, so it feels like a long time ago now, in episode five, I talked with Monique Davis from the Mississippi Museum of Art. She said something that has really stuck with me, and I've repeated to myself and others so many times. She told me, we need to do more heart work and less head work. And it was an important reminder to me that on this journey of building a more inclusive and equitable community, it's not just about head work, but it's also about heart work. And we can think about this work of preparing the community hearts as something like a collective opening, touching and opening the hearts of our community, then encouraging and motivating other people to join this work. So, Emma, can you start us off with an example of how this might work at the community level? Sure. I think of art as one of the most engaging ways to touch the hearts of a large group, and it can create powerful personal and community opening experiences. Art can be experienced passively, but it can also involve engagement or even be co-creative. I love the amends installation by Bob Faust and Nick Cave, both well-known artists from Chicago. In your interview with them, they talked about how this project was created in response to the murder of George Floyd. They gave the local community around their gallery a way to give their voice to the feelings and community conversation, a collective way to process that horrendous event but also a way to move toward a practice of transformation and action. The art installation they created had three distinct elements. The first element was about hope. They asked their collectors, curators, and civic leaders to come and write about racism within their own upbringing and write letters toward the eradication of racism, offering examples, quotes, and stories. Individuals wrote their letters with markers in public on storefront windows along the street outside of Nick and Bob's gallery. Letters Toward the Eradication of Racism. The second element they called Dirty Laundry. It was about reflection and about honesty. It was also about what the practice of adaptive leadership calls owning our part of the mess. They asked individuals from their neighborhood to identify the pieces of themselves that have contributed to holding society back from genuine equality and equity. Individuals wrote their response to the prompt on a yellow ribbon and tied it to the amends community clothesline that hung on the front lawn of the neighborhood high school. In doing this work, we all have to be willing to air a little of our dirty laundry. The third element was about a shared call to action. In response to the words on the strips hanging from the community clothesline, they commissioned a series of local artworks and performances that centered Black voices. They included poets, spoken word artists, dancers, and other creatives. In this step, they transformed the community conversation and what they'd heard into art, which they gave back to the community as inspiration for action. You know, Emma, I love, love, love the amends example. In this installation, people could participate or not. They could share what they felt comfortable. It met them wherever they were, but it asked them to take some risks even making things that they felt and a little bit about their history visible to their neighbors. It had elements of community-wide conversation at scale. 
It included co-creation. It included reflection, as well as something that created movement towards action. And the neat thing about this is this installation could be done anywhere. They did it outside of their gallery first in their space and in their neighborhood, but it could be done anywhere. But whatever is created out of it is uniquely of a place and is created out of a specific moment in time. I just think it's brilliant. So through the immense project and in my discussion with Nick and Bob, they also reminded me that art can have even more impact when it is out on the street than when it is in a studio or a gallery. So Emma, art's just one way for opening and touching the hearts of the community, but there are lots of others. I could go on forever talking about how important poetry and music are for touching, opening, and preparing hearts. But I want to just take a few minutes to say something about music. There is science, real science, that suggests as a tool for arousing feelings and emotions, music is even better than language. Through music, we can make connections with one another, elicit memories. We fire off our mirroring neurons and we can align with the others that are around us. We can join our voices in solidarity. And music even helps contribute to how we see ourselves and our identity, especially as we look back at a moment in our past. At the Racial Justice Summit that I've mentioned that was hosted by the YWCA at Madison, Wisconsin, I felt that some of the most powerful moments of that conference were the performances. They had music, they had dancing, they even had Native American jingle dancing as part of a performance. They had poetry, they had singing. And those moments touched my heart. It amazed me, and they even brought me to tears. Recently, I was also moved deeply at the um, opening of a Juneteenth event where all of us stood and joined together in singing the Black National Anthem. You know, those moments are indelibly part of those experiences for me, and now they're indelibly part of who I am. And, you know, if we just think about it, music has always had a place in this journey towards justice and liberation. There are so many reasons why it should continue to be part of any community's journey towards equity and inclusion. So, Emma, you know, another great tool for heart work, it's important to me and uh, near and dear to my heart, is storytelling. We are wired for story. Stories can inspire us and motivate us. They can help us make meaning out of the world around us. Stories can even be used to build or rebuild a community's identity. And stories can also be a way to revisit and reframe the past along our journey of collective healing. Stories are a way to build empathy, to acknowledge, and for a moment to see through the eyes of another. Lisa Crone in her book, Story or Die, reminds us that we don't turn to story to escape reality. We turn to story to navigate reality. And all of that reminds me of my interview with Patrice O'Neill from the nonprofit Not in Our Town. Patrice is a filmmaker and a storyteller. In her film, Not in Our Town, she tells us the story of Billings, Montana, and how the community of Billings, the individuals across that community, joined together and stood up against anti-Semitic hate and aggressions that were happening in their own community. 
her film showed how a community can choose to respond to negative events and can also then own its own story. The work that Patrice has done to share this film in communities all across the country has inspired a lot of other communities. And then it also led her to create a national network of anti-bullying programs. You haven't mentioned this yet, but I think that part of community hard work can also be about healing. There are many communities that make collective actions in the domain of remembering and honoring part of a larger community healing journey. I think of the work of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. The memorial, which is located in Montgomery, Alabama, is dedicated to the legacy of enslaved Black people, people terrorized by lynching, African Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow, and people of color burdened with contemporary presumptions of guilt and police violence. And one of the memorial's most unique and impactful aspects is its ongoing collaboration with local communities across the country to host conversations, erect historical markers, organize soil collection ceremonies, and hold essay contests for local high school students. And all of this is done in support of local community-led efforts to engage with and discuss past and present issues of racial justice. The conversation that you had with the local remembrance team in Greenville, South Carolina, really highlighted the importance of a community acknowledging and reckoning with its past. Emma, I'm so glad you brought that example up. The local remembrance events that I've attended, soil collection ceremonies, that kind of thing, were really beautiful examples of how communities can demonstrate respectful and public remembrance of even what is a past horrific event. You know, they were always so carefully and skillfully prepared. They didn't just look back, but they also looked forward. The services were held in a way to both educate and provide context for our past and current experiences. And I will say that in every one of those events, I personally felt moved to be amongst neighbors who had come together with respect and positive intent to help our community heal and move forward. And then I'm really grateful to the team in Montgomery at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice for creating such a powerful destination memorial, but maybe even more for the vision and wisdom that they had to understand that the traumas of lynching happened in large and small communities all across the country which means the real healing has to happen there too. And they designed their memorial and the supporting programs for that memorial with just that kind of local accountability and local healing in mind. And we can also think positively about this idea of memorializing and honoring. Maybe it looks like asking yourself, whose statues do you see around town? Not just those statues of individuals who you think shouldn't still be there, but we can ask ourselves whose statue is missing. Who else should we celebrate and pay tribute to? Who else has contributed in powerful ways to our community? If someone simply walked or drove through our community, would they see and understand the full story of, the, of our community and everyone who has made a significant contribution? Also, it isn't just about sticking up a marker to say you did. It's about doing the work to truly understand, honor, and recognize what has happened. In that vein, I loved the interview you did with Susan Glisson, where she talked about the welcome table approach and their work in Philadelphia, Mississippi, 
to acknowledge the 40th anniversary of the murders of civil rights workers James Shaney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. She talked about the importance of self-reflection, trust building, and community building, practicing new ways of interacting with each other, listening to each other's voices, working up to the heavy, lifting together and over time. Ultimately, community is not something we create on our own or even with those we know. Community is a co-creation where we all contribute and where we all hopefully belong. You are so right. This work of groundwork, it's an inside job. Only you and the others in your community can sense and know what's going to be required to prepare your community's hearts for this journey of becoming more inclusive and equitable. As we did with the pillar of community learning, I think maybe the best way to end this discussion of pillar two, preparing the hearts, is to wrap up with a series of questions for reflection about our own communities. So here are a few question areas that come to mind for me. So the first area has a series of questions. What aspects of preparing the heart need the greatest attention in your community? Is it healing? Learning how to hold different conversations? Motivation and shared intention? Creating shared identity? meaning-making, or is there some other aspect that your community needs? And then what kind of lasting container is required for that to unfold over time? And then the second area of questions are, who are the partners? Brian, not surprised to hear me ask that. Who are the partners, the artists, the poets, the storytellers, the musicians that can help in your community's work of preparing the heart? How can you move their work into the streets, reaching even more community members and increasing the impact. And the last area is to think about whose voice and whose perspective is missing and still needs to be welcomed into the room. And how can you make that happen authentically? Hmm. Those are good questions. Uh, It's a lot to think about. Yeah, it is. We didn't ever say this practice of groundwork would be quick or easy. We've just reviewed the second pillar, preparing the hearts. There are a lot of ways to touch hearts across the community. And we reflected on Monique Davis's advice to me of doing more heart work and less head work. We covered a few ways to touch the hearts across the community, including art, where we talked about the amends project, poetry and music, storytelling, healing, and memorializing and honoring. We also discussed how important it is to see the community as something that is co-created by all community members. So maybe we should transition to talking about Pillar 3, shifting culture. So Emma, why don't you kick us off on that again? Let's start off by sharing a couple of definitions for the word culture. In Making Waves, a guide to cultural strategy, the culture group defines culture in two different ways. So the first is the prevailing beliefs, values, and customs of the group, a group's way of life. And the second is culture is a set of practices that contain, transmit, or express ideas, values, habits, and behaviors between individuals and groups. So if we consider these two different definitions together, I think we can define culture as both the agent of change and the object of change. And we'll want to keep that in mind as we dig into this pillar. 
So those are a couple of great definitions. I, I really especially like the notion that they specifically call out values and beliefs. And thinking about shifting culture is, for most of us, is a daunting notion. And at State of Inclusion, we certainly don't pretend to have all the answers, but Emma and I are going to share some thoughts on this. So our main question is, how do we influence culture within and across a community to move towards equity and inclusion? That's what we're talking about here. And there's a group of practitioners and leaders working in the field of cultural strategy that suggest stories and narratives can play a big role. They suggest that stories and narratives can change how people perceive themselves and their role in the world. And they have a theory of change that calls for us to invest in the artists, storytellers, and other cultural leaders, as well as the strategies that activate them to work as catalysts for change to create a culture of justice and equity. And this is kind of an extension of what we saw earlier when we talked about the importance of story and storytelling. And we talked about how story touches the heart and emotions and can build empathy. So here we're talking about not only stories playing a big role in shifting culture, but also this idea of narratives. And they they gave me a great uh, metaphor that I'd like to share with you. It's about the difference between story, narrative, and culture. They suggested that if we think of a single story the same way we think of one star in the sky, then narratives are like constellations and culture is like the galaxy. I love this metaphor. Another reason to focus on stories and narratives as a tool for shifting culture is about persuasion. Professor Michael D. Slater, who's a pioneer in the study of narrative persuasion, tells us that narrative overrides our natural tendency to challenge information we don't agree with. When you have a strong narrative that's really absorbing, he tells us that it tends to suppress counter-arguing. It's hard to suspend disbelief and to counter-argue at the same time. And if we're thinking about how to make this happen, these different cultural experts tell us that Narratives are most effective at making change with three conditions. One is when they intersect with the audience's pre-existing narratives. The second is when they create a basis for stories that can be authentically told by the people who are seeking change. In that second example, the storytellers themselves matter. And the third is when they narrate a future that the audience yearns for and wants to live into. Ooh, that is a lot of theory on culture. You're right. But thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, you have talked with people that help us to see how this all works in practice. I'm thinking specifically of your interview with Corey Wilcoxon in Lexington, Kentucky, and their initiative, Lex Gives Back. It was part of Karen Armstrong's Compassionate Cities movement. Corey and the team has built a narrative of Lexington as a compassionate community. They built on the compassion that was already present, too. And they created a citywide event, a call to action of sorts. And then through using stories of individual moments of compassion, they wove a narrative of the city as a compassionate one, which was, in fact, a future that many in their community wanted to be a part of. You know, I think that's a great example of how stories, narrative, and community identity can work. 
there's another aspect of shifting culture that I feel like we need to talk about, and that's this idea of social capital. Emma, could maybe give us a quick primer on social capital to kind of put us all on the same footing? Sure thing. So we're going to talk about two types of social capital. One is all about the nature and quality of relationships between people and networks. It includes elements like trust, trustworthiness, and identity. And the other is what is called cognitive social capital. And that's about what we were just discussing, building shared narratives, understandings, shared values, attitudes, beliefs, goals, and vision. When most people talk about social capital, they're often talking about relational social capital, and they talk about three concepts. Um, so bridging, which includes opportunities to reach across and engage with individuals and groups that you may not typically have exposure to. Bonding social capital, which is the idea that you are able to build relationships across groups and across differences. And linking social capital. And this is about building structures and relationships across groups where you're integrally linked with others around shared interests and outcomes. I'm also going to throw in the idea of belonging. John A. Powell from the Othering and Belonging Institute talks about belonging is more than joining a club. It's about co-creating and co-owning structures to belong. He also says that belonging is not just how we treat each other. Belonging is how do we actually organize our economy, our structures, our schools, our faiths, so that everyone belongs, and recognizing we still have differences. So let's talk about what this looks like in action. I'll jump in here. You know, when I think about bridging and bonding, I think about our local Hispanic Alliance and their annual La Fiesta, which celebrates how the diverse local Hispanic cultures contribute to the vibrancy and prosperity of our hometown. But I want to say it just isn't just about events. Uh, This goes beyond that. It's about mentorship, about tutoring, about teaching English and creating personal relationships. And another great example for me about social capital was a performance of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, which was sponsored by and held at, wait for it, our local First Baptist Church. It was a great example of bridging. It was challenging and thought-provoking. I mean, we had drag queen performances in the Baptist church, but also it was powerful and beautiful with personal stories that broke down barriers and evaporated stigma. You know, honestly, it created opportunity for both bridging and bonding. And the key is to find ways to break down our natural instinct to other people. When we no longer see someone else as other, we can then move to richer and deeper experiences of bonding and linking, and ultimately to what you talked about, Emma, belonging. Again, it isn't about a single event. It's about circling, repeating, going deeper and deeper, and going further over time. It's a practice. It's about irrigating the community with these ideas, you know, Think of your community soil and the process of irrigating that soil and changing it from a dry, cracked, parched desert to a fertile and rich area where growth can happen in every corner. You know, there are so many small steps that we can all take, whether it's around including others in our church community, teamwork and co-creation as parents, maybe around the education of our children, which is important to everybody, 
or working together in something as simple as a sports booster club program, you know, all of these opportunities to create bridges, linking and bonding opportunities with other individuals in the community that we otherwise could think of as others is progress on both a community and a personal scale. Right. And the key here is for it to be on an equal footing as peers and reciprocal where possible and never transactional, extractive, or exploitative. If this looks like or smells like doing for someone or saving someone, then you're not really bridging, bonding, and linking as we're talking about here. Emma, you are so right. Uh, Thanks for the reminder about the risk of going into the savior complex and how the notion of bridging, bonding, and linking are connections on a personal level as equals and peers. It doesn't work otherwise. There's another thought that I'd like to put out there. I recently worked on a post covering some reading that I've been doing on how complex social change works. And the main reference for that post is a book called Change, How to Make Big Things Happen by Damon Centola and the research he has been doing around the study of networks. And I have got to admit that his work really changed how I think of social change. If you're interested, I'd suggest you start with the post and then maybe read his book. His research shows that complex change across social networks does not happen through things like influencers and viral posts or videos. He tells us that those are tools for simple change, for information sharing. He calls the kinds of connections that influencers have, you know, they have a lot of connections, but he calls them narrow bridges with weak ties. And they're useful in a lot of cases, sharing information, putting something out there, but they're not helpful in complex change. Complex change, something like changing beliefs or changing our communities, that requires entirely different approaches. That requires something he calls wide bridges and strong ties. Moving change through networks that have many cross connections and more personal and stronger ties. And this is way too big of a discussion for this episode, but it still gives us an idea of an approach, another way, some more tools to think about how we can shift community culture. This pillar of shifting culture is one of the most challenging aspects of our groundwork practice. And, you know, hopefully we've piqued your interest and offered some ways to think about what might be required to shift the culture of your community and maybe even where you could start. And as with the other pillars, uh, let's uh, wrap up with some questions to ponder about our community. So the first area is, you know, what is your honest assessment of the culture of your community today? How does your community talk about itself? And since we aren't the only ones who define culture, our own culture, how do others talk about your community? And then where in the fabric of your community do you need to shift culture? Or what aspirational elements of culture do you want to live into? Just like Lexington wanted to live into compassion. And then where in the web of networks across your community can these cultural shifts best be seeded and take root? With whom do you need to share power? What cultural gifts and talents does your community already possess that can contribute to this work? And then 
Finally, where do you believe that bridge building and trust building is going to be needed? And how can you get started on that today? You know, every day our communities reinforce their existing cultures and build towards a new emerging culture. As we wade into these cultural waters that flow throughout our community, we may have the opportunity to influence the flow. Still, we've got to keep in mind that culture emerges from the beliefs and actions of the whole community. It's not built or changed by one person or one organization, but it's brought to life by the collective actions of all community members. Still, cultural change begins, as most change does, through changes of individuals and small groups. And as Damon Santola tells us, that is often on the periphery that we begin to shift and change the whole. And I'm going to share another quote by John Paul Lederach. He's so, he's so wise. And, and this quote really speaks to me. I heard him talk about this with Krista Tippett on her podcast, On Being. He said, when it comes to cultural change, we excessively fixate on the critical mass and underestimate the catalytic quality of the improbable few. He called them the critical yeast, these small, unlikely combinations of persistent people and partnerships committed to a new quality of relationship that dwell before and behind every instance of social change that truly shifts what is possible and transformative across generations. Critical yeast. I love, I love that idea. You know, we can ask ourselves, are we part of the critical yeast within our community? We've just reviewed the third pillar, shifting the culture. This pillar had a lot of theory as we started with the definitions of culture. Then we talked about stories, narratives, and culture through a metaphor of stars, constellations, and galaxies. We learned that narratives are most effective when they intersect with the audience's pre-existing narratives, are told by an authentic storyteller, and narrate a future that the audience yearns for. Emma described two types of social capital, relational and cognitive, and then we focused on relational for our examples as we touched on concepts of bridging, bonding, linking, and belonging. Then we concluded with a very brief introduction to the science of complex social change across networks, where social scientists tell us that for complex changes, we should focus on wide bridges and strong ties, and that sometimes complex change best starts from the periphery. And that led us to talk about John Paul Lederick's concept of critical yeast and the catalytic quality of the improbable few. You know, all this discussion leads me to wrap up with a few thoughts about emergence. Margaret Wheatley of the Burkana Institute and Adrian Marie Brown are such great writers on this subject of emergence. So if you're interested in this, you should really read some of their books. These points that I'm going to make here come almost exclusively from their work. And in their work, they ask us to think about a few critical elements. Margaret Wheatley tells us, we each create our own worlds by what we choose to notice. And Adrienne Marie Brown talks about fractals 
and reminds us that what we practice at the small scale sets the patterns for the whole system. And these ladies also tell us that systems are relationships that we observe as structures, but we can't really ever capture their complex, co-evolving, and transcending relationships. Then Margaret Wheatley, in her book, Turning to One Another, says conversation is the natural way we humans think together. Change begins when a community of people discovers that they share a concern. And then she says there's no power equal to a community discovering what it cares about and that real change begins with the simple act of people talking about what they care about. And for any of the control-minded people in the room like me, it never hurts to also remind ourselves that living systems can only be disturbed. They can never be directed. And the system is spinning itself into existence, leaving us really no choice but to become interested experimenters, you know, sending pulses out into the system to try to affect change. And, you know, they both remind us that life truly changes through this concept of emergence and that the pace and pathways of change aren't linear and that they are very much iterative. And transformation happens in, and we've probably all seen this, it happens in cycles, in convergences, and even in bursts or explosions. And they also tell us that all of that happens by fostering critical connections. And they tell us that rather than worry about critical mass, our work is to foster those critical connections. Wow. Thanks for all of that, Amy. We have covered a lot of material in this episode. We started by reminding ourselves a little bit about the practice of self-work and program work. Then we jumped into the deep end on the practice of groundwork and talked in depth about the three pillars of this area of practice, which are community learning, preparing the heart, and shifting the culture. And then we wrapped all of that up with a brief reflection on this concept of emergence. And our thinking on this was informed by the wonderful interviews on the podcast and also by some great social scientists, researchers, and writers. We'll be sure to include our best references in the show notes for any of you who would like to dig in even deeper. I'm really looking forward to bridging some of the concepts we've discussed here into our practices of systems work and coalition work, which we'll cover in upcoming episodes. They're all really connected. And as always, thank you for listening. Thanks, Emma. This has been the State of Inclusion podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, the best compliment for our work is your willingness to share the podcast or discuss these ideas with others. If you'd like to hear more about the practice of building an inclusive and equitable community, head over to theinclusivecommunity.com and sign up for our newsletter. Also, feel free to leave us a review or reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Music